Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Too queer for the disabled, too disabled for the queers. These are the words with which my guest today has summarized his searing memoir entitled Go the Way Your Blood Beats. Welcome to the bunker, Emmett de Monterey. Thank you very much, Alex. I'm delighted to be here. Emmett, can we start with words? You use the word disability uh, while acknowledging that the term is loaded. What is your precise diagnosis and what does that mean for your body? I was medically diagnosed when I was about two years old. Um, My parents didn't know what was wrong with me for quite some time. And my parents kept going to the health visitor and saying, there's something wrong with our child. And eventually I got a diagnosis when I was nearly two years old. And my medical diagnosis is spastic diplegia, which basically means that my muscles are really, really tight. And that I also have um, cerebral palsy. And the subset of that is spastic diplegia. And until I was about two or three years old, my father carried me. I was initially in a special school, and there I learned to walk using crutches. I mean, this is a book effectively about intersectionality, without, I think, mentioning the word once, which I quite like. I think that's very elegant. Um, Why did you feel you needed to tell that story? Well, that's a really interesting question. I suppose I felt like I could look back on the story from midlife. I'd got to a point where I'd traversed a lot of the challenges that I write about in the book. I'd found a partner. I I was in a happy relationship. And I was trying to remember what it felt like to not be in that sort of safe harbour and, you know, just how difficult it was for me to traverse that. I'm probably um, ascribing this quote to the wrong person, but I remember, I think it was about a book called The Bluest Eye, but Toni Morrison said, if you cannot find the book that you want to read, then you must be the one to write it. When the idea for the book sort of started to germinate for me, I thought, well, as a young, queer, disabled teenager, I would have really liked to have read something like this that just alerted me to the fact that I wasn't alone because I felt incredibly isolated and incredibly alone. And, um, you know, obviously I grew up under Section 28 as well. So that sort of legal evasion was very unhelpful because I couldn't read about myself in the school library. It was illegal for teachers to answer my questions about my emerging difference. So my double difference, if you like, felt incredibly hard. So I I, I wrote it for, I suppose I wrote it for the person that I was and also for, you know, young, queer, disabled people today. I mean, I'm sure there, there are many who may benefit from this book. There seems to me to be a lack of acceptance throughout much of your childhood from the people around you 
thinking they can cure you with love or determination or hard work or even prayer. Everyone, including you, I think, seems to be reaching for the child they feel they should have had and begrudging the child they have. That made things psychologically more difficult. But did it also push you physically to do things that doctors said you would never be able to do? I'm just interested in how those Mm. two things play against each other. Well, I think you're absolutely right, Alex. I think that I had a real sense growing up that I was very, very different from my classmates. Well, not from my classmates, because I went to a special school initially. I went to a special nursery. But I ha- I'd internalised this sense from wider society that my body was wrong and that therefore I was the problem. And the medical model of disability kind of posits that it's the impairment that disables the individual rather than the wider society around him or her. Mm. So I really had internalised that idea. But as you say, it sort of, it was a double-edged sword because it sort of galvanised me to do things that I wasn't expected to do. Like when I was initially diagnosed, my parents were told that I would probably never speak or, or sit up or do any of these things and obviously when I started to speak my mother said he never now shuts up so (laughs) so that was something I think she was quite um and quite difficult I want to talk about your mother actually because you plainly adore you describe feeling proud of her for being different and simultaneously secretly wishing she weren't different, (laughs) you know, secretly wishing she would conform a bit more. But when you're talking about yourself, especially at that young age, it's almost invariably the latter. You never seem to have that pride in your difference that you had in your mother's difference, mixed in with a wish to be the same as everyone else. Has that become easier as you get older? Yes, it has, absolutely. We talk about disability now in in very different language, and the concept of ableism wasn't around when I was a child. The idea that the disabled person can internalise the prejudices of the world around him or her and and, and feel, feel terrible, frankly, as a result. And all I saw was the embarrassed way in which the world mostly dealt with me you know parents pulling their children away Mm. stairs that are held a bit too long so I didn't find a way until relatively recently if I'm frank to inhabit my disabled identity with any kind of pride I always Mm. internalized the idea that I was somehow broken and needed to be fixed and actually from the benefit or the hindsight of midlife it feels like a real um, lost opportunity internalizing the narrative that I somehow needed to be fixed. There is also a sort of a palpable underlying rage that runs through the book and it doesn't feel current weirdly it feels like recollecting how awful people were Mm. is somehow Mm poking at an old grudge. Um, You are a psychotherapist by trade. Yes, I am. Uh, Did you find the book therapeutic to write, actually, (laughs) in in personal terms? Well, 
Weirdly, I thought of hope that it would be. I thought I would feel this tremendous. Did it actually dredge out stuff that you'd rather not? Uh, yes, absolutely. Not have done? <laughs> absolutely. Um, and I really hoped that I would feel some kind of catharsis at the end of it and feel like I'd put that period of, of time to bed. And in a sense, I do. But as I, as I said in the last question, I feel I'm really glad you picked up on the rage because I'm really glad that I can reflect on that and see that actually the way that I was made to feel was wrong. The things that I internalised mm. about my body and what that meant was wrong. So I'm glad that you picked up on the rage there because there is, there is some and it was quite difficult to write it. it had. I didn't just pick it up. I felt it. Oh, really? I, I In- genuinely felt it through you. Like there were, there were bits that made me genuinely red-faced and angry about how shitty the world could be. Now, you had an operation aged 12, which was quite a big deal. Tell me about that time. When I was 12, I was under the care of Guy's Hospital, and I went about every six months or so for checkups. And my consultant at the time said, you know, when this child gets their adult body mass, they will be pulled off their feet. They were suggesting some quite haphazard surgical interventions, which were the only things that were then available, hamstring cutting and muscle relaxants and things like that. And my parents quite rightly said, you know, we're not going to allow you to carve up our child on on a hunch. And we need something which is more considered. About three months after that, um, I was put forward for this surgery this revolutionary surgery at uh, something called a gate laboratory, which currently then was um, in operation in Connecticut in the US. The kind of partnership of that, if you like, was that I would I would go through, through this process in public and then I would be the fundraising figurehead of a disability charity to bring the technology back to the UK for British children. You had been led to have expectations of it that turned out to be slightly inflated. I mean, it has been hugely beneficial for you. It really has. And, and actually, you describe a sort of a sort of survivor guilt almost, meeting uh, teenagers who had the same diagnosis as you but hadn't benefited from the, that operation. You sort of felt bad for them. Very early on, you also began to realize that your difference is not confined to your legs, but extends horror of horrors to your feelings. I think you were only five when a teacher scolds you with, you can't give a valentine to a boy. Uh, What did that feel like? It was really peculiar because at home... I, my parents were archetypal kind of middle-class liberals, and at home there was no such, no such thing as gendered toys or gendered behaviour. So my mother bought me dolls and I could play with whatever I wanted. And then when I was out in the world, I was suddenly being given all these messages about what gender meant and what masculine behaviour was and what feminine behaviour was. And it was so shocking. It was so deeply shocking to me because... The boy who, that you, the incident that you refer to in the book, the boy that I made the Valentine's for, I just adored him. I I loved him. And I felt that there was nothing transgressive in expressing that. And that the, the, the world's reaction 
was really my first experience of being slapped down and being othered. I got a sense that it was deeply problematic for the adults around me that I act on my feelings. And I think the combination of those two meant that, and you describe this in the book, I probably counted at least 30 separate occasions. And I don't know if you were conscious that you were doing that, but you're constantly describing the distance between you and the world in various ways, mm. from finding it difficult to keep up with your mother as a child to the the space between you and what you call the Gillette men, right? <laughs> the, now, the gay scene is an environment that maximizes that distance, right? Between Absolutely. the perfect Absolutely. and the imperfect. How, how frightening was it to come out? Absolutely terrifying, to be frank. I mean, it really, it really was. When I finally spoke to my mother about it, and as I say in the book, it really wasn't a surprise to her at all. Um, and she said to me, she, she drove me back to school, and she said to me, I'm just so frightened because... I want you to find love and I want you to have a life. And I'd been brought up around several lovely gay uncles who were friends of hers, not, not actual uncles, but sort of honorary uncles that were friends of hers. And she said, you know, I'm terrified that you won't find this life mm. that you deserve for, for precisely the reasons that you say, Alex, because the gay scene, particularly then, was predicated on an idea of physical perfection that I, I, I really felt that I fell short of. And I, and I was really, really, really worried about it. And actually, my initial forays into the gay scene were incredibly destabilizing. Traumatic. And yeah, re actually, yes, that's a better word. It was really traumatic. I mean, your, fir your first trip to heaven does not go well. No, not Ditto at all. with your first visit to no, a gay bar. Not at all. Um, it really, really doesn't. And, and actually, the first trip to heaven, I make a joke about it in the book and say that it turned out to be hell. But the, a man um, essentially, <laughs> essentially sexually assaulted me on the way out and then told me that I, w I was lucky for that attention and that actually he was only doing it because he felt sorry for me. So... <laughs> Yeah, it was a very lonely, very, very difficult time. And I really felt like I was going to be a bystander forever. And, and that actually, this rainbow vision of equality didn't apply to me at all. And your first time in a bar, uh, someone ended up furious with you because they didn't notice your crutches until they had bought you a couple of drinks. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, again, I, I think it was years before you went back to a gay oh, bar ab after that. Absolutely years. Absolutely years. And I didn't go again on my own. And what was, what was so shocking to me about that You know, I was standing on the pavement for 10 minutes before I even dared to go in. And what was so shocking to me about that was he, when when he did clock my crutches, he, he assumed that it was because I had complications from HIV. And actually, at that time, I was kind of a, a virgin. You know, that would have been an acceptable way to be gay for him, which was really peculiar, really, really peculiar. And Yeah, made me feel like I had no place at all. And what I found very interesting is that that weirdly echoes your experience of boarding school in that, you know, your disability is discovered in a, in a 
queer environment and it becomes a big problem. And similarly, at the school, you were basically threatened with expulsion because someone bullied you for being gay and the housemaster told you to keep your head down and get through it. And what I want to ask is this. Why are spaces designed to accommodate a specific difference so much worse at accommodating any additional difference? That's a really, really good question and something I thought about a great deal while I was writing the book. Um, Because I think if you're herded into a space based on one difference, then, as you say, they're structurally set up to only deal with that difference. And I think society as a whole is very ambivalent and very uneasy about disabled people expressing any kind of sexuality, let alone homosexuality. I mean, I remember um, the wonderful counsellor who I went to see, who I write about in the book, who frankly, I would say, um, saved my life. She bought a manual quite a radical, I mean, the fact that it's radical is really, really sad, but that's the truth. Quite a radical manual she found in America of basically positions for disabled people to have sex in, like an instruction manual. And because, because pupils were asking her, clients were asking her, you know, how do I express this? And, and if I do get the chance to express it, how do I then go about it? And, and this was found out and she, she was, severely reprimanded and she was told that it wasn't appropriate in that setting yeah it just wasn't seen as something that would be part of our futures so if you yeah double difference they really they really really couldn't cope with you discovered that cab drivers i really enjoyed this bit of the book you you discovered that cab drivers uh, could be exceptionally open with you um that that they see your vulnerability as allowing them to reveal theirs in a way, including a really beautiful encounter with one Christine that I won't spoil. This was just before you went off to uni. Was that the seed for you to become a professional therapist? You don't acknowledge it directly in the book, but it seems too close a coincidence that suddenly you discover this superpower that people open up to you and tell you <laughs> their darkest <laughs> secrets. That's really funny. I hadn't, I, I hadn't made that link before you said that to me, Alex. I wonder, yeah, maybe it was, maybe it was a subconscious decision because I do find that being disabled, people will avoid you, but they also will approach you. So, so yes, and I, I've always been fascinated mm. by human experience and, and that which makes us different and that which makes us the same. And I, yeah, I, I suppose, I suppose that is it. And I've always really liked to ask questions and to, yeah, just to find out about people. And I think that, yeah, I think there is something about being simultaneously kind of disdained, but also people do tend to approach you in a different way. Yes, I think I think you have to think about it and get back to me. Uh, Emma, to, to wrap things up, in the epilogue to the book, you describe a present-day incident of someone abusing you with the word spastic, mirroring the very first time you heard that word used as an insult when you were really a toddler. And you write that everything had changed and nothing had. What needs to change? 
Oh, that's a really, really big question, but a really important one. I know. I think, to be honest, there are enormous structural inequalities still facing the disabled. And I think if I can talk about it in terms of, there, I think there was some scope research commissioned in 2016 called Let's End the Awkward. And it was a series of internet kind of videos, basically about how the general public should and could approach the disabled. And a lot of activists found the videos quite sort of the, the, the tone a little bit wrong. But, but what they were trying to show is the level of prejudice that still exists for the disabled in society across, across all areas of life, be it employment, personal lives, or governmental discrimination. or it, It's just, there's so much that needs to change, and there's so much structural inequality. And I hope that this book is the big well it is part of a wider dialogue around around that you know because as you said at the beginning the very idea that that this book has to be written in a way is is rather sad you know the very idea that that a disabled person has to assert their sexuality in such a public way and assert their right to exist in such a public way is is really quite i mean i hope in a sense, that one day coming out narratives and identity narratives, whatever the identity is, aren't necessary because we're in a much more inclusive, compassionate world. And so therefore, we don't have to police our particular silos of identity. We don't have to fight for whatever those identities look like because we're in a much more compassionate, um, inclusive world. And sadly, I think that we have quite a long way to go. Emmett de Monterey, thank you so much for educating me and and for telling your story in such a fearless way. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Go the Way Your Blood Beats is out on July the 7th. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day, so if you like our work, you can and should support our work for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with a small sample of Emmett's brilliant book. Watching him go, I understood I was invisible. For all my careful, costly preparation, I was a ghost. The handsome queer basher didn't see a target. I was no threat. He only saw someone disabled, a cripple he was happy to help, a good deed. My disability rendered me sexless. It protected me from his bruising hate. I was shocked to understand I would rather have been punched. This is Alexandreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreo. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, the managing editor was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Pasha Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott, The Bunker. Is a Podmasters production. Uh-huh.